Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Good morning, and I am sitting here in the Higgins Hotel, um, next door to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Um, they've just very sweetly turned down the music, although actually it was quite atmospheric, really. And I'm sitting next to Jim Pee Wee Martin, um, legendary veteran of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And I'm just, le- I'm also sitting with his, his good friend Doug, um, and I'm just learning that you have the largest number of Facebook followers of any living veteran. That's correct. And that's due to the affiliation I have with Doug Barber, mm-hmm. historian and social teacher. For 40 years, I did help people get in touch with their relatives because I have an address phone number of everyone that went through my regiment through the whole war and the survivors but that was with a telephone and a pencil (laughs) then I met Doug and of course with his putting it all on Facebook now we're we together are able to help a lot more people and I think you have something like 30 over more than 31,000 followers that's quite something you see, you've got to also remember this. There are a lot of people that write books and give first-person accounts, and I'm not into that. It's not about me. It's sure. about the mission. Right. Now, we all did extraordinary things in the unit I was in, the 506 Parachute Regiment, 101st Airborne, was a leading group going in Normandy. That doesn't make me special. We all volunteered. We all trained for it. We got paid for it. So you can't call yourself a hero. You're doing what you were paid to do. And I will say this. We went in to landed at Liverpool and the different battalions were put in little villages. My battalion was put in a village called Ramsbury. Mm-hmm. Now there's 750 people in our unit. There's 1,500 people live in the village. And up on the top of the hill, the Air Force, mm-hmm. there's 2,000 people with a town of 1,500 and nine pubs. <laughs> it took some while to get used to the differences in the language and what words meant and all of that. And there was some problems. Some guys did a lot of bragging, which we were told not to do. But we're all young and away from home. Mm-hmm. We have no social constraints whatsoever. So a lot of guys went kind of wild. And of course, drinking became very paramount. None of them drank at home because in the first place, with depression, they didn't have money. In second place, it was frowned on. Right. But when you get away from home and nobody's watching you, those things did happen. And you're all the young guys together, aren't you? I mean, you're young men together and... Oh, and yes, that's right. And then some of the older women, when I say older women, 
in their 30s, 30s, 35 or 40 were pretty upset because of promiscuity was going on. And I told them, I said, look, let me tell you something. Whenever a war happens, everything speeds up. When this is over, you're going to go back in the same state life that the British people had, and that's what happened. But then I used to tell them, now look, for every guy that's doing this, it's a British girl helping him. So you got to look at that too. But we did make friendships. And then, of course, we trained there for a number of months. And it was the best place that we ever had through the whole war. It was almost the same as being home because our parents got in touch with them and everybody they were sending things over to help the guys over here. Then the British soldier got almost nothing. And at that time, we were making over $100 a month. They couldn't get a cab. They couldn't get a girl. So I, with my brash thing, I wrote the War Department <laughs> and <clears throat> said I thought what we should do when we went into a country Refreshments is, to come pay, as is to pass on a scale commensurate with what their people are making. Right. And I did get a nice letter back and it said, you don't really understand what this is all about. These people have been fighting since 1938. They have nothing. There's heavy rationing. And we want to put money in their economy, but we can't legally give them money, and we wouldn't if we could because that would make it look to them like we're looking down on them. We pay you guys, and we know damn well you're going to go to a cub and spend it, so it gets in the economy and helps them that way. Okay, I understand that. <laughs> but I still thought it was wrong. But it was wonderful. And have you been back to Ramsbury? Oh, yes, I've been, I've been back. Has it changed much, do you think? Uh, no, really, the, the village hasn't changed a whole lot. But, but I bet there's not nine pubs now. I didn't find anybody in the village that remembered the war. I found that very strange. I'm surprised about that because I live in a small village in southern England and it's still, yeah, there are people. You know, I remember interviewing veterans who were in the, in the British Navy. There was a guy who, who fought all the way up through Italy during the war. I mean, he just passed away the, the other day. But, you know, it's really has a resonance in, in my village. That's, that's, I'm surprised about that. Well, that, I was surprised too. But can I just rewind the clock a little bit? And what made you decide to join the Airborne Forces? Well... <laughs> were you drafted that, or did you that, volunteer? I know you volunteered no, for Airborne Forces, but were you drafted first and then uh, volunteered for the Airborne? This is a strange story. You're going to laugh. <laughs> I, when I was five, I saw a parachute jump at a county fair in Bedford, Indiana, and I thought I'd like to do that sometime. <laughs> but I was most interested in submarines. Really? I read Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and and BB went down in the path escape and all. Yes. So I went in and signed up for the, for the Navy. submarine. And I was in. And then I said to the guy, how soon am I gonna go? And he said, well, they're working on the sub you'll be on, but it'll be about six months. We'll keep in contact with you. And I thought, no. 
See, I had a deferment. I didn't have to go. Right. Why was that? Because I was working in the war industry, tool and die. Ah, okay. And I was not interested in going, and I'll tell you why. It wasn't fear or anything of that nature, but I grew up listening to stories of World War I guys who were gassed and all of that. Mm -hmm. And we became very isolationist as a result. Yeah, sure. In fact, we passed two laws. One was the United States would never again fight a war unless we were attacked. The second one was we're not going to give any aid of any kind to anybody else that is fighting. Yep. That's what made it so difficult for us to give anything to Britain when the war was going on. And that's why Lend-Lease started. There was no bar against lending and leasing. So that's how we gave stuff to Britain at that time. Sure. But let me tell you something else. Roosevelt was a Navy man. He didn't much care for Army, but he realized that he had to use everybody. But in his writings after the war, he said that there was only room in the world for one Navy, and it was not going to be Britain. <laughs> it was going to be the United States. And under Lend-Lease, they didn't get that free. They paid for it. And he practically bankrupted England. You have to face the fact. That's not nice, but that's what happened. Well, anyway... Uh, I wasn't going to go, and then Pearl Harbor came along, and that didn't affect me in the least. Now, here's how wrong you can be. I thought, Japan, hell, we'll have them whipped in two months and be over. Well, I had no idea what the capability they had. So I just said to them, we're listening to them. Uh, go down and watch the newsreels at the theater on the weekends. And seeing Father Coughlin with all that stuff, burning the draft boards and everything, Hitler ranting and raving. And it was quite obvious that Britain and France could not sustain unless somebody went and helped them. Now, there's another myth that went around that we went over to save Britain and France. That is not true. We went over to join with them in Australia and Canada and all the others to get rid of a tyrant. We did not go over to save him. And the United States was the only one that was able to do a great deal industrially. The United States supplied 50% of all the war material throughout the whole war. We were the only one that had the capacity to do it, and it was right that we should do it. Now, there's a lot of talk about, well, they didn't pay all their money back. Still, America got quite rich on the back of it, didn't it? Well, you know how I feel about that? I don't think we should have asked them to pay anything back. Well, what you paid back, what, what Britain paid back was war loans, which was separate from land lease. But listen, I mean, I think what's, what's amazing about the Allied victory was the degree of cooperation absolutely mutual support yep prioritization yes i mean you know britain wasn't as industrial as as 
as the USA, but still managed to produce 132,500 sure. aircraft in World War II. And they did everything they could do. All the countries did It was, it was everyone pulling do. together that, that, yes. that won it. And we did not stop and say, oh, we did this and you, we did more than you. That, there was none of that. But to go back to my original point, what, how did so you were going to be a submariner, but you end up being in the 101st. Well, what happened was I thought I had a big fight with my boss when I left. He said, what do you mean? There's people out there kill for deferment. Why are you doing this? And I said, because I feel it's an obligation and we have to go help those people. And he said, let me tell you something. He said, these contracts we have for military stuff are cost plus. And for every hour you're here, in addition to my profit, I get $5 an hour, clear money. And I said, well, Ed, you know, I'm only a, an apprentice. It doesn't really matter. He said, I just told you, for every hour you here, I get $5. And he said, I don't give a damn if you sleep in the rag bin. Now, that's how the, the industrial people felt, selfish. All they're thinking of was the profit. Well, anyway... I couldn't go back and ask him to work six more months. So oh, I went right see. across the hall and signed up for this 101st Airborne thing. Right. Now, see, Bradley had been watching what happened in Crete. The Germans won, but mm -hmm. it was a disaster for yeah. them. Yeah. And they never thought about Hitler never liked paratroopers after mm -hmm. that. But he thought, Bradley thought, we should have some. Well, the old guard wanted to stay with what they'd done before in World War I, and he kept telling them, no, we got to change things. We're going to do things differently. And so he went to Roosevelt and put it to him and asked about it. And Roosevelt said, look, you can have your paratroopers if you want them, but here's the way it's going to be. The people you put in charge are going to be able to have any material they want, any personnel they want, anything they want done, and the only person who can overrule it is me. Right. Well, so Bradley got a hold of a guy named Major Lee. Bill and, Lee. And he sent Major Lee out to Missoula, Montana to watch the smoke jumpers to see how they did it. And he stayed out there several months, and he came back, and he said, with some modifications in equipment and the way they do things, he thought it would be very good for us. Right. So, okay, they put out the thing, you know, going to have this new great unit that never been anything like it. Now, there's 2,150 people in a regiment, parachute regiment. 6,500 people signed up for this. And so the way it was, they would send people to Fort Benning mm -hmm. for four weeks, and they come out of paratroopers. But they'd lost 25% going through on every class, and they thought that was unacceptable. So they picked a guy named uh, Colonel Sink, put him in charge, and he said, we're not going to Fort Benning. We're going to have what I call parachute basic. And that was in the middle of July until the 1st of December, the 6,500 people trained. And what year was this? 42? Yes. 
And when we got through December 1st, that 6,500 ended up with 1,650. Amazing. That and that's Dakota. And then we went to Camp McCall and took training. And then we went to uh, down to the Alabama area and we took more training. Then we went overseas. And his theory was this. You take your basics together, you take your jump training together, you take your personal training together, and when we get overseas in combat, everybody is going to be there when I need them. Nobody's yep. going to fall out. I mean, you were really well trained, weren't oh, you, by absolutely. 6th of June? absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the 5th, 1650, of course, we had to build it back up, so they took in replacements, and they basically went through what we went, not quite as bad, right. because we were the experimental unit. All the things were tried. Many of them were thrown away. They also put us in dangerous situations, right. like over trees and everything. Then so they you were the experimentals, this, really? Yeah, and they'd have a critique, and they'd say, this is what we want. Is the losses we may suffer on this worth it for this? And yeah. if they didn't think it was worth it we didn't do it do you think do you think uh in retrospect you should have done more training with with the transport no you think you knew what you all knew what no you, you know what happened to the transport yeah. the air force got a bum rap on this mm, i'll tell I know you why did. we flew in a series of nine planes only the lead plate had a navigator yeah well we did not expect this cloud bank when we hit normandy yep so it was so close together, and what they thought right away spread. So what happened in your plane? Can you well, remember? We, we just spread out. And then what happened, you, you lost your navigator, and those other eight planes didn't have a navigator. Now, remember the Pathfinders were all over, different groups of them, mm -hmm. and each one of them had a Eureka, yep. and then the plane that was supposed to jump there had a Rebecca, and they were on a each on a frequency. Well, when they lost their navigator, we didn't have Might as well that. not having them. So the, what happened, the pilots, they saw some pathfinder lights, they dropped them. So it was just in any place they weren't where we were supposed to be. But what's really interesting is, is that 50% of you still landed within one to two miles of your yes, drop we did. zone. And I think it was 75% less than five miles. Which in the big scheme of things is... It still was good. It's pretty good. Yeah. And I've looked at those maps with, with you know, little dots of where all the drops were. Yeah. And actually, they're not as yes, bad it was as, pretty as the good. history suggests. Yes. You know, there's this kind of myth about now, it. No, I, I landed on drop zone D. Did and you? If you know the history, that's yeah. the worst one. Yes. We lost Colonel Wolverton. We lost my company commander. We lost... Yeah. In fact, we... The first three days, we never had an officer show up. Did you not? Can you remember? Can you remember taking that leap of faith and jumping out of the plane? Oh yeah. And what we? I mean, I just can't even begin to imagine what's going through your mind. Or are you? Are you? If you got time well, to feel I scared, can tell you what went you through just, my mind. Yeah, I'd love to know. We had all of these heavy caliber tracers coming up. Yes. Different colors. You're right. It was fascinating. <laughs> now people said, "Were you afraid?" I said, "Look, we'd never been there." We had nothing to judge about fear, about right. how it was going to be. And all I could think was all how beautiful it was with all these tracers coming up. Right. And I said it was really fascinating. Well, we hadn't been there yet. 
and you know we're cocky as hell we're going to kill every damn german and right, all that right, stuff right. and of course i talked with the paratroopers later uh we fought uh, we had the first and the sixth german parachute regiments yeah they were pretty good now we fought against the sixth and so i have learned uh met four of these people right since the war we've become very good friends oh good we still i uh, still hear from them and we laugh about it and they laugh about it they had just brought them over from the russian front you remember they tore mm -hmm. hitler tore up the non-aggression thing there yeah, yeah. so those people came over there yeah and they laugh now about it they're professional soldiers their whole lives they've been fighting yeah. and we haven't even been in we're going to come over and trounce them well we did our job yeah and we lost a lot of people you sure but uh we did what we're supposed to do well that's amazing so you you you, you came down in sort of roughly where you were supposed to be and, and oh and, i did and 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 were you with colleagues or, or did you I mean how long did it take you to kind of sort of get yourself together and work out well, your bearings and where you were and all that we kind were of trained two ways one we were trained to work as a unit right and if we didn't get with our unit we would go with anybody that we could get together with well, sure. when I hit the ground I was alone and then my sergeant came along and that's another thing when they scattered they were supposed to slow down it to 90 miles an hour and make a slight left turn they didn't do it. We jumped in 150. Right. And most of them lost most of their equipment. Right. It was torn off. Mm. What about I didn't you? lose any. You got. You had all yours. I didn't lose a thing. Now, also, a lot of guys threw away the reserves because they figured we're too close to ground to use them anyway in combat. So they threw them away, and that helped a little bit. But when we about 20 of us got together now remember they got double summertime over there mm -hmm. and at 11 it's still you can see a little yep we came to a little crossroad and there was a sign on the pole up there we didn't even though we had the sand tables we weren't oriented because we we're not sure where we dropped where we should have well a guy climbed up and read it once he read that thing we knew where we were and we were about 20 people from different units together Right. So the guys then start going where they're supposed to go. And when then we there's about five or six of us together, and uh, Sergeant Skeen was in charge of us. I think there was eight of us. And we were supposed to go down to the river right away. Well, we ran into some German machine gunners. And they were trying to get behind the guys up on the levee. And we, we stopped that. But we didn't get down there the first day. 69 people got down there the first day, but we did not. We got rid of those machine gunners. Now, if those, we hadn't been there, they would have been behind and it had taken them that night. Right. But it didn't happen. We ran into about four or five machine gunners that we stopped. But we went down the next day, and anyway, there was a, we were opposite Brevand, mm -hmm. and up on the hill was an 88. And he started firing at us, and there was eight of us in a little uh, ditch there. And the shells started walking up this ditch, and it, they stopped at the guy next to me. And several weeks later, some guy came up to me in a PX, and he said, do you remember me? And I said, no. 
He said, well, I was the guy next to you, and that last shell got me, and you didn't get it. I said, that's right. Well, that's how those things happen, see. But once you were in action, did you, you felt you knew enough about, although you hadn't been in action before, your training had been good enough to kind of equip you with what you needed to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we felt very confident. You felt confident. And oh, absolutely. And confident yeah. in your equipment as well, I guess. Well, yes, we felt we had the best equipment in the world. We didn't really. The Germans had better than we did because there's a whole been battle tried in, in the Civil War, remember? Mm. They went over there and... and uh, so they, they knew what worked and what didn't. Really, they had better equipment than we did to start with. But a lot of your operations in those first few days as well, you know, it's at night, isn't it? It's moving down towards Carentan and all that kind of thing. I mean, you know, it's, it, was, it, was it quite conf a confused picture or were you quite aware of what was going on, do you oh, think? Oh, people say we weren't aware of what we knew was going on. We certainly did. You did? Yeah, oh, absolutely. In fact, people in the United States watched the newsreels all the time. They, they knew exactly what was going on in, in the politics that was concerned and all that. And, I suppose and, I meant more what, what, you know, when it comes to, you know, after the first few days and then you've got that battle for um, uh, Saint-Combe and then you've got, you know, Carentan. I mean, with that the was the, that was the linchpin. If you yeah, lost Carentan, you lost France. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the German command initially... The German command thought this was a feint. Mm. They weren't sure. They thought we were going to hit down there at the narrow part. So they really weren't prepared. And their theory was, let them get on land and we'll surround them and annihilate them. One man said no. That was Rommel. He said, if you let them get on the land, you're going to lose the war. We had the same thing on Eisenhower's side. His group didn't want paratroopers. They thought if paratroopers went, it would be a slaughter and we'd lose. Yeah, that's right. Lee Mallory was in yeah. mistake about it. Well, Eisenhower wrote later, <clears throat> and he said to them, I've listened to all of you, but the decision is mine. Paratroopers are going. Yep. And to give him credit, nobody bucked him. They all yep. went with him. And turned out historically he was right. Yeah, yeah. We got rid of the initial people that were over there. We disrupted all the communications. And of course, we had a big break, and that is that Hitler wouldn't release the tanks. That's and right. He was sleeping, and nobody would wake him up. Yes. If, if we'd have had, they'd have had the tanks earlier, we'd have had a lot harder time. Sure. Now, but Carantan, all that fighting down towards Carantan, I mean, that was, that was quite a tough period, though, wasn't it? Yeah. Now, we had well, two objectives. That was two bridges yeah. that the Germans had built just several months. Mm -hmm. Now, you remember, that's an agricultural area, yeah. and there's no roads, so they depended on the sea to make their living. Right. Well, those two bridges cut that off, and the people were very angry about it. And another thing you got to remember is the Germans had to have some cooperation from those people. They're pretty independent agriculture people. Yep. They went on with their farming just as if we weren't there, right in the middle of firing and everything. That's amazing, isn't it? And so they gave them some leeway because they didn't want a resistance to develop. Right. Well, we, we got our bridges the first day. 
One was this pedestrian and one was the vehicle. We wanted to preserve those. That's what Germans are going to use to take reinforcements down to the beach people. Yep. Then we wanted them preserved so we could use them for the 4th Division coming in. Well, if it happened, we on the jump, we lost all of our communications equipment and uh, division didn't know where we were and three days later when they hadn't heard from us they figured we were wiped out and they ordered the fighter bombers to come in and destroy the bridges. Well they did. There was two of there was several of them come in and Chaplain McGee and uh, Ed Shames, Sergeant James, were up on the levee when they heard him, and McGee was waving cerise panels, and Shames was letting out orange smoke, but they didn't pay any attention. They just straddled those two guys right. with the machine guns and dropping bombs, and they partially destroyed the bridges. Well, then we didn't need us anymore, and the 28th Division came in, took over, and then we went in, did whatever we needed to do, any place they wanted us after that. Well, your next big operation was at Son in Market Garden. Oh, yeah. What well, do you remember of that? In Market Garden? Mm. Well, that was the most ill-conceived thing that ever happened. From Eindhoven up to the Rhine is 60 miles through enemy territory. We had from Eindhoven halfway up to the bridge at Gob. And then from there on, 82nd head up to the line. If you remember the Pegasus Bridge, they dropped those gliders almost on top of it. And with a very small force, they only lost three guys. The commanders that came over to re see the Germans had the north side of that bridge, and we had the south, or the 82nd yeah. had the south side. The Germans had the north side of that bridge. The commanders were supposed to come in and drop on there to take the bridge. Instead, they dropped them six miles away, and they had all their equipment, they had to walk that six miles. And in the meantime, the Germans reinforced that, and we tried, well, I say we, the 82nd, tried to flank them, and they couldn't. The Germans had reinforced it to a point and they couldn't. And we knew at that point it was a failure. Right. So my friend Al and I, we're, we're, we've done quite a lot of work on this. And uh, in September, when it was the 75th anniversary, we went, we went out to, to Holland and we went to Arnhem and to mm -hmm. Nijmegen and, and so on. And um, so we're quite interested. We're particularly interested in this, this particular campaign. But, I mean, you know, you achieved all you had to achieve at, at Eindhoven, didn't you? No problem at all. Well, the, the problem, see, the first 10 days we were under our officers. Yep. But after that, of course, the, that our officers were under Montgomery's forces. Right. Well, Montgomery was supposed to have had his units come up there no later than three days. That's right. And they sat on the rear ends. And, of course, what happens is you've got your convoys going up, taking supplies up, and you got a... Uh, trucks coming with dead and wounded and you got tanks going up on that narrow road Yep. and the Germans would hit them on the side now that we were supposed to not only take the road but a quarter a mile and a half wide on each side 
Well, the Germans hit a convoy, and it stuck. Convoy stops. What happens? The guys get off, take a leak. Yep. The British get off and start making tea, which they do. And our guys start cooking food, and going in houses and talking <laughs> to people. Well, by the time we got the, the Germans out where they hit us, it'd be a couple of hours. Right. And then to get a convoy and get everybody back in on it, you got another and a half hour, one and a half or two hours. And time you get going, you've lost five hours. We didn't get the people up there. Now yep. the G- British had put 10,000 people over, and then you had a brigade of Polish in that. And out of that group, they lost 8,000, and they didn't get them. We only got 2,000 back. The rest were killed, wounded, and captured. Yep. But you did your bit okay, didn't you? And what should have happened then, McGarry should have released our people. We are not meant to sit on defense when there's no asset to be gained. No, sure. Bastogne is justified to be on defense with airborne troops. We should have been released and let regular troops go up. They were doing nothing but sitting there and get it beaten up with attrition. You couldn't move in the daytime. They'd shoot a 88 at one person. And we lost 3,500 people killed up there. Hello, it's James Holland here. While I've got your attention, I hope you won't mind me mentioning a book I wrote called Normandy 44, D-Day and the Battle for France. You may have heard me mention this before, but I hate to say it, Christmas is getting nearer. And if you're thinking of what to buy for those with an interest in history, and especially those fascinated, as Al and I are, by the Second World War... Well, perhaps this might be something to consider. This is just a mention, nothing more. I think there's something for everyone in it. Bags of human drama, plenty of easy-to-follow analysis, a bit of myth-busting, pictures, maps, and I hope all put together in a way that makes for a fascinating and fast-paced read. That's the aim, at any rate. And should this be a book that is stirring interest, then it's very easy to buy from Waterstones, Amazon, or any bookshop throughout our great land. Thank you, and Happy Christmas. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. We dropped a son. Yes. And then we're supposed to cross the canal. Well, just as we got there, they blew the bridge, if you remember. So they took some planks and made a little walking bridge. Now, the 506 then turned around and would go back to Eindhoven. And the second battalion, my second battalion, was taken off, and there's a girls' school there. Division set up their headquarters, and we were we were pulled out to be security that night. And just about ten thirty or eleven, a captain came out and asked for volunteers to dig a foxhole for General Taylor. And I said, "This is combat. Tell him to dig his own damned hole." <laughs> and he was running around trying to find out who it was, and of course he didn't know any of us. Right. And I told the guys, I said, I think I know a captain that dug a foxhole that night. <laughs> well, the next day, there was a, a couple of women up there on in front of the school on the steps. One of our officers went up to talk to him, and, and he, he, he started talking in French. The women answered in English. Some of our guys had been standing over here talking about their breasts and everything and the women weren't paying any attention but when this officer got up there and they started in English she turned and smiled at him <laughs> and that's how those things happen sure. so anyway then we went on with the rest of the guys and there were two 88s boresight shooting down the road they got one and they couldn't get the other so they flanked it and got it and here's right in the middle of battle and the people were coming out of the houses giving guys something to eat and something to drink and hugging them and everything. And then there'd be some more machine guns shooting and everybody go back inside the houses. Well, of course, yes, then the, the girls who had been consorting with the Germans, they sheared their hair, tore their clothes off, and oh, run through a gauntlet. And one woman had a baby with her. Oh, yeah. And I thought that was terrible because... Yeah. I told the guys, I said, you know what? Those girls didn't have any chance. Right. If a German wanted the girl, he took her. She either went or she got shot. Well, that's the way things happen anyway. They were pretty bitter about it. Yeah. But anyway, we went about our business then and stayed that 70-some days later, which we shouldn't have done. Sure. Yeah. So Bastogne, just to go on to Bastogne, I mean... That must have been hard, wasn't it? Well, yes, and the living conditions were hardest. Right, because it was just so cold. Now, see, I read after the war in some of the books about all of us had turkey and dressing for Thanksgiving. And I said to Mark Bando, I said, where the hell did that come from? We never saw anything like that. And he said, you forget, Jim. Your unit was out in the open. 
a lot of these guys were in villages and right. the people did do that for them sure and we were right out in laying in slit trenches and foxholes so you were in the woods were you there was no woods no, there you were just okay we you were, were out open. well we're partially in the woods and partially out but the shells were coming in, hitting the trees, and that was even worse. Because you get and, splinters from the... Yeah, and then when you got up and made it, if you saw something going out there and you think you're going to come in on it, you go out and break it up, well, you run. Right. And you flop down the snow, and then you go through the trees and it goes down your neck, and you're all hot and sweaty. Then you come back and get in that foxhole, and it's cold. Yeah, sure. You're wet. And, and you can't have a fire, can you, or anything like that? Oh, hell, you couldn't even light a cigarette. You, people don't realize you light a cigarette, you can see it a mile away. Right. So you didn't do anything like that. We, we couldn't do anything like that. So you were in a two-man foxhole? The what? Were you in a two-man foxhole? No, I was in a slit trench, just one slit trench. One slit so just on your own. So you haven't well, got anyone to warm, keep warm with. The funny thing is we got a real heavy barrage of mortars one day, and... Nassif was too far away to get back to his slit trench and he ran over and wanted to get in with me. Well, mine was just wide enough to get me in. I said, well, you can lay on top of me. And he said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> well, he did. He laid on top of me, but one hit pretty close to us and covered us both with dirt. Now you can imagine being covered with dirt. What the hell do you clean up? Yeah. Well, we laughed about that, but that's the way it happened, and of course it got as low as 20 below. How did you keep going? Well, you don't keep going, and that's another thing. They couldn't fly for 10 days, so yep. they couldn't re- give us anything. And when we went in, remember, we had already given up all our weapons and everything to get ready to go to Guam. Right. And all we had was what we had on us. Right. And then... Uh, we didn't even have ammunition, but luckily some guy from another unit heard about it, and he got a truckload of ammunition. As guys went by, they could pick up rifle ammunition. and uh, But we didn't have enough shells or anything of that nature. And, uh, of course, we laid out there, and it, we were opposite a little place called Reconia. Right. And... The Germans were down there butchering pigs. We could see them, and the little one got loose and came up almost to us and turned around to go back, and the sergeant ran out and grabbed it and shot it, and they laid it down in the snow and cut it up and ate it raw. Wow. And I wouldn't do it because at that time it was a good bet that every pig in the world could have trichinosis. Right. And we were already sick anyway. <laughs> Did anyone get ill? Nobody got sick, though, luckily. Uh, and then water. What do you do about water? Well, we were patrolling, and we found a place about a mile away, a pond, and break the ice with your butt of your rifle. You steal a jerry can off a, a tank or a truck that's had a gasoline or diesel in it, and you bring it back and fill your canteen, but you can't you got to drink it right away. It'll freeze during the night. Got you, yeah. And, of course, it tastes like gasoline or diesel. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the Germans are using the same place, and you're hoping you, they didn't meet at the same time. And uh, then another thing, you, you go on patrol at night, and uh, your wires, telephone wires are laid out there, and 
and shell would cut cut them and tanks would cut them so a couple guys have to go out there and fix them you never know who's you're going to meet right. and and it was pretty damn miserable Not and and was. we had so little food i had one k ration and that lasted me that's all i had for 10 days wow and so for amazing. christmas i had snow and and lemon powder goodness me with cordite on the snow and then some damn fools, I don't know who it was, they found a, uh, up at Bastogne where the bombing, they got in there and they found a bunch of liquor. And they came out to all the companies and gave them bottles of liquor. And I thought, and the guys drank it. And they said, boy, I feel warm. And I said, yeah, you damn fool. It's taking the money out of your, all the heat out of your body and putting it out in your hands and everything it makes you feel but i said you're losing your your core heat right and then of course if you get wounded and you go in to get operating that's a hell of a note to have alcohol is a depressant you don't need right. that right well that's the kind of things that happen so and we quit shivering we didn't have enough to keep food to keep shivering People that's amazing say, so you're so cold you're so hungry that you can't you're shiver. going into thermal stuff i mean you're you're really in trouble yeah but you know, people say, well, how did you stand? Well, you had to. Yeah. You had no other choice. Not but how did you keep yourself going? I mean, how do you keep spirits up? We never had a bit of trouble. Nobody complained about anything except being cold. Right. But the thing that they did do, keep your spirits up, talk about, when we get out of here, we're going down and eat the biggest damn steak they got. <laughs> That's what they talked about. But nobody felt put upon poor me or anything of that nature even no. when they came in and asked our surrender nobody even even talked about surrendering right 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 now you know they were supposed to annihilate us after two hours well the guy that was supposed to do it I can't remember he was a general he was a hot dog and he wasn't known to be liked among his own general peers he decided he was going to ignore orders. He's the guy who was supposed to use the artillery. He wanted to get to Antwerp and make a name for himself. No. Well, he didn't get to Antwerp because Montgomery hadn't cleared Antwerp. It wasn't cleared yet, so he lost out there. But that was good for us. We sat there and waited those two hours, and uh, nothing happened. And we didn't know why, but that's what it was. Well, of course... They came in there through Colonel Harper's place, 327th Glider Regiment yep. outpost, and said they wanted to surrender, and McCall was so nuts. Yeah, I've never really understood he, he, that. Amazing after after he, thought, he thought that they were going to surrender to us, and when Kennard told him no they want us to surrender that's when he said all nuts oh that's the explanation you're yeah. the first person ever to have explained that to me and then <laughs> he said what am I going to tell them and Kennard told me later he and Kennard and I got to be friends until they ended the, I mean until they died and he said I told him that last remark he made and he said what was that and he said nuts so that's what he wrote and he gave it to Colonel Harper and told him take him back out there and Colonel Harper went out there and gave this to this German and 
He looked at his noise, noise, what does this mean? And Harper said, I told him, that means we're going to kill every goddamn German tries to get in this city. What? And then, of course, the Germans said, well, that doesn't go with the American humanity. We'll give you two hours to think it over, and then we're going to annihilate you. Well, of course, that didn't happen. But uh, we just sat there until uh, we got relieved. And as I say, Montgomery should not have kept us there. Do you, do you remember being relieved? Do you remember that moment? Well, I got... I got hit somewhat, and I was in the hospital then, so I didn't, I was only there about 10 days. But I knew what went on with all the other guys, because we talked about it all the time. And of course, they, they got in that jam factory and raided it. Yeah. And uh, then one of the officers had been really bare about teaching these guys to watch out and not shoot your own people and one of his own guys shot him on patrol one night the guy was on the outpost and, and the lieutenant went out to check his outposts and one of his guys shot him and killed him and that's the kind of things that happened so were you there in uh, were you down in in bavaria at the end of the war yeah we were up there uh the last place we took was uh, hitler's hideout up on yeah. top yeah. It's a beautiful part of the world, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you know, now I used to say to the guys, you know, look around you, the, all the beauty here, and these people were supposed to be, they're Catholics, and they're supposed to be very religious, and yet they could do these things. How could it happen that way? And, of course, another thing people don't know a lot about is Roosevelt and bankers in this country were contacting the bankers in Germany formulating plans to get Germany back on its feet after the war. And they needed a charismatic person to front for them to get the people into this over in Germany. They picked Hitler, but Hitler turned the tables on them. As soon as he got authority, he trashed the Constitution and took over. So that's why that happened. Yeah, he certainly did. Talk about going through Hitler's house, not the Eagle's Nest, but the Berghof. What did you see when you went through there? Well, because it because it, it just been bombed, hadn't it, by 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 the RAF? But, well, but the shell was still there. Where the house had been, the British had dropped the big bombs. Yeah, yeah. The fifteen thousand pound ones. Mm -hmm. It partially destroyed it, and there's all these papers every place. Wow. With all, and a lot of guys picked them up and told them, and they've been selling them after the war for $50. And we were wiping the rear end on them. And I was using some to write home. And <laughs> really? I got That's a incredible. message back don't use those things. People over see, see those things. Right, see Causes the symbols. A lot of trouble, yeah. So, what was it like, though, to be kind of thinking, gosh, here I am, I'm walking through Hitler's house? I mean, this is, you know, he's the guy who caused all this. And here we are, right at the end. I mean, it must have been an, an incredible feeling. And, and well, it was. It was an incredible feeling. But you know what? We never at any time had any feeling that we were not going to win. No, sure. Well, I'm, I'm... Just the way it was. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Now, people picked up souvenirs. I, I didn't do that. You never did that? One guy, believe it or not brought home the, the bathtub plug from Cedar 
from Hitler's bathtub. And I said, what in the hell couldn't you pick up something better than that? And then, of course, he, uh, Winter's people got up and we weren't allowed up there. You went up to the, they yeah. went up the Kostein house. And they practically destroyed that mantle up there yep. in that fireplace, but yeah. knocking pieces off of it. Right. He shouldn't have allowed that to happen. That's a terrible thing to do. But fascinating to see Hitler's house, I should think, and that. Well, bunker. yes, it was, and and he and I got to sit right there in Eva Braun's room and look out that same window she looked out. Yeah, that gave yeah. us a feeling. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is amazing up there. And, Hell of a view. I mean, crikey! And if you look at the video that he made, he has us in here after the war, and then he's got in there. The Germans, when they were there, having That's their right. dinners and everything, and we're having a dinner in the same damn room they were having dinner. And it's unchanged, isn't it, from that yeah. point of view? I mean, really, you can go there and you can just go, oh, my God, it's exactly the same spot. And you'd go in there, like Winters went in this big banquet hall. That's right. And the woman in there was preparing for a German dinner, and she went out the back door and he went in the front door, and what did they do? Started taking the silverware. He got a whole silver... The officer, you know, they, they were out getting stuff just like we were. And one guy got a, one of the fortified limousines that were up there that Hitler had. And uh, after a couple of days of running around, they, they were going to pull us out and new guys come in, regular ground force. And this one officer from the ground force came over and said, I'm going to be back here with my driver in an hour, and I want that car. Kid didn't say anything, and one of the guys said when he left, well, you gave that up easily. And he said, uh, he won't get very far. And he said, why not? He said, I shot holes in the radiator. <laughs> <laughs> but we just, that, at that time up there, uh, we just had a whole of a time running around with vehicles and uh, even one, two of the guys got an airplane up, a little spotter plane, <laughs> really? but they couldn't land it, so they crash-landed it. Oh, my goodness. You know, oh, they survive? The, yeah, they didn't get hurt. And uh, Sink put an order out. He said, anything that's got an engine in that you come across, you have to shoot through the motor block so it can't be used. Right. I don't want to write a letter home to your mother and dad after the war's over seeing you got killed so that's, that's that stopped some of that yeah but you know it was not uh, not so much a great euphoria war was over because we knew then we would have to go to the pacific right at that time right. that was right. still right. there right and uh, so it was uh, so it felt a bit sort of half the job done yeah but we knew we'd be wounded uh, we were going to go to the states for furlough and then go to Guam right. and of course that didn't happen they come in there in the middle of the night and I thought oh hell that's another one of them damn things we're, we're not going any place well when the truck started coming and we went away at night with the lights on I knew damn well we were going someplace right. they dumped us off in a field a muddy field we didn't know where we were our officers didn't know any more than we did. Nobody had any maps because you weren't expecting to go any place. Anyway, they put us in a rough 
20 mile area around Bastogne there. And then when McAuliffe went back to uh, the general and told him where we were and everything, and he, uh, and Kennard told me about it later, he said, uh, when McCullough turned to go out away, the general said to him, oh, by the way, Tony, get yourself surrounded. So he came back, and so the consensus was, well, we'd better notify all the troops and get them out of there. And they didn't say how they're going to do the defense, because what happened, Kennard said to them, look, all these months we've been training like this. We're going to throw all that training away. The only difference is we came in by truck instead of by plane. So they decide, no, we'll stay. And <clears throat> if they had not, if they had done what they thought they were going to, Kennard told me what they were figuring to do was to make a straight line defense. Right. If they'd done it, they'd have flanked us the first day. Yep. Would have been over. So what, what Kennard did, now remember, he bucked two generals. Yep. He risked his career. That's what people, these young guys, remember. Well, it's different types of courage, isn't it? Over, there's physical courage and there's moral courage, and you know, well, you've got to have the courage see, to make these decisions. Uh, Mark Bando and I have talked about that mm. a lot. Physical courage is easy. Right. Moral courage is not. Now, that's another thing people don't realize. In World War II, infantry officer in combat had a right of summary execution. Did you know that? I didn't know that. If his order was disobeyed and you're actually engaged in combat, he could shoot him on the spot. And we had two times that happen in our unit. Really? Yes. And one of them I was very familiar with. We were getting ready to go out on a raid. And at the last minute, we got a notice from Colonel Sink to hold up. Plans are being changed. We'll let you know a little later. And this one sergeant, platoon sergeant, that was never known to drink, was drunk. And of course, nobody knows why he was drunk. Would you? His was. nose was shot. He, he had two bottles under his jacket, and he was drunk. And the lieutenant told him to go back to the regiment stay there until they sobered up and I've got the paperwork I can even send it to you exactly what was done and said he said you're nothing but a chicken shit and he started swinging his he had a Tommy gun started swinging it around toward the lieutenant the lieutenant said don't do that unless you intend to use it and he kept going the lieutenant let off 10 shots, shattered the glass and killed him. And he took off his, the tent took off his field glasses and his weapon, handed it to another sergeant, said, you're in charge. And he went down to see the company commander. He didn't have to, but he did. They came back, company commander listened to the stories that looked like self-defense and he left, went back. Company commander got killed three days later Nobody ever talked about it. How amazing. Nobody oh, ever said a word about it afterward. Wow. And I, if you want, give me an address and I'll send you copies of the paper. Yes, please. It tells you about it. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do it. I got them.
Amazing. Well, listen, thank you so much. You're That's most been welcome. fascinating. And I should just say, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see you wearing your jump jacket. Well, wearing I'm it with pride. To wear it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. I've got one of these at home, obviously without the badges because I haven't earned them. But um, uh, I'm very fond of my jump jacket. I have to say, it's a great jacket. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's really good to see you, and I, I can really thank you both, and Doug as well. Thank you for, you're most for, for, for doing this. It's a, it's been a, it's been an honour.